Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. And uh, I uh, am glad you're here. I just love coming to be here because I love you guys. Uh, and if you're new with us, just want you to know, we hope you experience some of that and that uh, you're encouraged and we're so glad that you're here. And uh, especially if you're someone who's not sure about Jesus and the Bible and all this, you're here because somebody asked you to be or you just happen to kind of come through. Um, you know, we're, we really appreciate you too. We honor you for being here and we just uh, encourage you that, you know, we're, I'm praying that you'll experience something encouraging to you, but also maybe something that will surprise you uh, about uh, what uh, this Jesus is really all about. Uh, but I want to start today with a story, like I've been starting, only this time it's not a Bible story. It's not the story that we're going through. <clears throat> it's a story that actually happened last year, uh, best I can tell, around Easter time. And it comes from uh, a pastor by the name of Mark Sayers. He's a pastor of uh, Red Church down in Melbourne, Australia, down there on the tip of Australia. And um, he wrote a book last year called Reappearing Church, which is a book that we're using in the Resilient Christians class. And what I really appreciate about this is how honest he is uh, in putting this story right up front in his book, because it explains a lot about the time we're in, what God wants to do in it, what, he's will, what, what Mark Sayers is being very honest about, his sort of reaction to some things, which I can identify with, and I hope you'll be able to identify with too. Uh, but just the openness, sort of like we've already seen uh, this morning, just the openness of what God is up to in our lives, even when uh, it's a struggle and it's difficult. And, and here's what happened. Uh, last Easter Sunday uh, in, at Red Church, uh, there in Melbourne, they uh, had a great service. It was an amazing time. It was Resurrection Day. It was just great and uh, just awesome. And Mark was looking forward to going home and spending the afternoon with his family because he speaks all over the world. And he had an 18-hour plane flight the next day on Easter Monday. And so he wanted to get as much time in with his family as he could uh, because he was going to be gone for a while. So he uh, needed to stop by real quick at the church offices, though, before he could go home. Apparently, the church offices there are separate, like we used to have, uh, from uh, the venue where they had their worship service. And um, as he pulled in the parking lot, he immediately realized the obvious truth that something was not right, because somebody had tagged the side of their building, and the first thing that caught his eye was a, a white sheet kind of flapping in the breeze in front of part of the wall. And then on the other side of the white sheet, there was two words, off God. And he looked underneath, and he saw a vile word that went in front of the two words, off God. Now, I don't need to use our imaginations, but I can guarantee you it was not the word, bug off God, okay? Even that would be a problem. But here's the deal. Mark, as he looked at that, he just got so, you know, blown away. He started to spin. I mean, he was encouraged by the fact that the people that had put up the sheet was the Catholic priest from across the street. The Catholic priest, the Protestant church now, the Catholic priest that brought his congregation over, interrupting their Easter Sunday service to try and scrub this stuff off the wall. They couldn't get it off, so they put up a sheet. You know, I mean, that was encouraging, but still it's like, Easter Sunday, are you kidding me? God, what is going on with this culture? You know, how in the world have we gotten, come to this point? I mean, this is disgusting. And, and how can you allow this to happen and, and, you know, this vileness to be spoken in your name and that sort of thing? And, you know, 
All the things I would have thought. And then he started thinking about who can I get to, you know, paint this off. Maybe I'll call the staff. No, the staff's already gone uh, to their Easter breaks with their families. Can't do that. Oh, I know. I'll call one of those super Christian volunteers that they have, which we have. You know who you are. I would think of you. But they were gone too. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of all that, uh, the Holy Spirit just kind of interrupted him and said, Mark, stop. I want you to deal with this paint the wall. And he did what, again, I would probably do, all right. And he went to the dusty old shed and was rummaging around for some paint, got the paint. And it wasn't until he started the brush strokes on the wall that he started to relax, kind of the rhythm of it, I guess, just kind of started to relax. And, and the thought came to his mind, you know, this probably wasn't the work of a uh, anti-Christian, post-Christian, secularist, progressive Satanist was probably an angry teenager. Oh, yeah, seen a few of those hanging around. And then the thought came to his mind, why don't you read the note that the priest left you? So he read the note, and it was very kind and gracious, and they're praying for us, and all of a sudden. And he thought, you know, that's, a, that's interesting. Catholics praying for Protestants? That didn't happen very often. And suddenly his, his you know, attitude started to shift, like maybe God can even use trash like this. And I'm going to read you the um, last two paragraphs of uh, th- this story that he mentions and, or that he's telling here. And it's not going to be in the screen. It's okay. Jesus didn't have a screen. So we're just going to have you listen to this, okay? Listen to uh, how he came, what the conclusions were that he came to in the midst of this. Because it has a lot to do, I think, with the passage and the story we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 6. He said, after an afternoon's work, the graffiti was gone. In its place, a blank wall, but also a blank canvas covered with fresh paint and fresh possibilities. God had deposited something powerful in me, reframing the challenge before the church, that is the global church, in the West, that is in the West part of the world, you know, where Christianity has been flourishing all these centuries. As cultural Christianity washes away, A blank canvas is appearing with the possibility of a new story being written upon it. What seems like a crisis when reframed through the eyes of the Holy Spirit was an incredible opportunity, reframed from the lens of defeat to one of potential. God just had stopped me and interrupted my frantic and worried pattern. What if this secular moment in our culture is only a crisis if we ignore God's call for renewal? What if we reframe this as brilliantly good news? God always has his people where he wants his people. With nothing to turn to but him, it is in the place of weakness that his power thunders forth. Do we dare believe that he can do it again in our time? That's pretty good questions, isn't it? I think it's pretty powerful. I mean, I, I think about that about my own life, you know? I mean, think about how sometimes we tend to spin. And it's what I'm going to call the ghosts. And I'm putting ghosts in, in, uh, in quotes because we'll talk about spiritual entities in a minute. But what about the ghosts that, um, that inhabit our memories, inhabit our assumptions because we live in a fallen world? 
What about those ghosts of things that we've been told by the culture that just simply aren't true, but it's sort of a reformatting and trying to reformat our brains? What about the reality of living in this dark age? What about those things that inhabit our our lives because of the the sorrows or the hurts that we've had? What, What about, you know, that amazing, wonderful moment where Tiffany opened up to us this morning about what has happened in her life, and we're all going, yeah, oh man, I'm with you, I understand that, and you know, there's a little bit of understanding there when we're all together in that moment, and because, and a little bit of encouragement even, because it's it's like, you know, we've been there, and it's, if, if we don't deal with those, or rather to put it for more clearly, if we don't let Jesus deal with those, we can start to see him and think things about him that are just untrue. And that is precisely the place that the disciples were in at the moment. They were seeing things through the lens of this is always the way it's been before, but it wasn't that way anymore. Why? Because Jesus was here. That hadn't happened that way before, right? And even after they had had this amazing mission trip of, you know, casting out demons and and healing people and seeing people come to Jesus that they never thought would possibly come and that sort of thing. And, And even after the breaking of the bread, you know, those little pieces of bread, they weren't loaves, we call them loaves, but this was not Dave's killer bread. This was little pita bread things. And he broke that and broke it and broke it and broke the fish and broke the fish and broke it and broke it until 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, maybe 10,000, we don't know. 5,000 men probably brought their families with them, some of them. He fed all those people just from five little pieces of bread. He conquered physics. (laughs) And, And yet, you know, they still had a hard time understanding. And the story that we see at the end of chapter six begins to shift their thinking a little bit. Not just their thinking, but begins to shift the lenses through which they see what's really happening to them and what's going on. Look at beginning at verse 45. Immediately, this is after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Now, first thing I want you to notice is he made him get in the boat. This, in the original language, is, is what the word means, he made him. But it doesn't mean, you know, we've only got one word for this. But in the Greek language, they've got lots of words. And this particular word, it's like, it's got force to it. He forced them to get in the boat. It was like, well, Jesus, uh, Peter here, we don't want to get in, the, get in the boat. No, well, why don't you come? Just get in the boat. All right, we'll get in the boat. It's that kind of made. I'm going to make you get in the boat. And then he went off somewhere else. Why would that be? Well, possibly, remember, they'd been caught in that storm when Jesus was sleeping. Remember that? Jesus, where's your faith? (laughs) And they're going, "Uh, we learned that lesson already, Jesus. I fooled me once, you know. They're not in a storm this time, but they're in heavy winds. So to them, it was a storm. (laughs) And it's so hard, they could hardly row. We'll see that in a minute. But I think it was something else. Because there's another possibility. Remember at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, John tells us in that story, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that shows up in all five, uh, or or, sorry, all four of the Gospels. Um, At the end, there's these people there, almost certainly uh, militaristic zealots, 
Zealots being the Jewish militarized uh, militia, uh, these little pockets of vigilante groups that were going to take down Rome, going to take down the Herods. Some of those people came along and said, okay, we believe you're a Messiah. You've got this power. Now we want you to use it on Rome. We're going to make you king. We want you to use it on Herod. We're going to make you king. And try to take them by force is what, the word, uh, what John says. You know, that kind of idea of, hey, let's shortcut whatever God's doing here and let's go right to the good stuff. That's kind of a, that, that's a common thing to do, right? And it's kind of contagious. It's kind of a contagious idea. So Jesus makes them get in the way, stop talking to those people, get over here. Get in the boat. I think that's probably more likely what happened. Because Jesus then goes again to pray. What's he praying about? Well, that's a crisis. You know, every time, this is the third time Jesus goes away to pray. Each time it's alone and at night. It's, it's in the midst of a crisis and he has a decision to make. Uh, and this decision is probably has to do with, Father, I'm gonna, show, I'm gonna continue with the plan. I mean, think about this. Jesus is God. What's he doing? Well, he's communing with his Father. He's saying, I'm gonna stick with the plan and that is, I know that I am not to be a freedom fighter. I am to be a servant to this world and that's a more powerful thing and that's how you're going to do the Messiah. That's how you're gonna redeem the world. So he's reiterating his, you know, he's making the decision to follow the plan, to follow what his father has told him to do and so forth and so on. So that's what's happening. But every time this happens, these three times, every time the disciples are alone, something goes cuckoo. Every time they're alone, something starts to flip them out. Because, okay, where's Jesus when you need him kind of thing, right? That, that's what they're experiencing, and that's what they're, they're, they're um, seeing happen to them. But it still raises the question, why did Jesus need to pray? Because he was God, 100%. He's also 100% human, and there's the reality that he's teaching us stuff, so he's teaching us to pray, right? And why not bring the disciples along with him? I mean, what a great teaching moment. And, and, and yet he doesn't. Why does he need to be alone? Well, probably because he needs the environment, the atmosphere around him of belief. And these guys weren't there yet. These guys weren't experiencing that. Yet. And again, he's affirming the call of God on his life. And I'm sure he's praying for his disciples. You know, something along the lines of what James, Jesus' brother, would write later in a letter in the New Testament. James wasn't a Christian at this point, but after the resurrection, after he becomes a Christian, and, and understand these disciples who had a hard time believing, they hadn't seen the resurrection yet, they hadn't even seen the cross yet of Jesus conquering the evil powers. So the, the reality is, is that, that James discovers this later, and he writes in James chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you know, why is there grumbling and arguing among you? He's talking to a church. And he says, you know what it is? It's because you're not getting what you want. But the reason you're not getting those you want is you haven't asked God for it yet. I mean, you know, we can understand when we pray for winning the lottery, right, that God doesn't answer us. Well, actually, he does answer, and so the answer is no, okay? But when it, comes to, when it comes to, you know, stuff like, you know, stuff like this, like, God, do something with these, you know, the, the, this evil culture and these evil world and these mean people and so forth, you know, that's, that's a little harder to make sense of. And, and we, we won't be able to do that unless we pray like Jesus is praying. You see, Jesus wants us to pray because he's going to do what he planned to do anyway, but we won't get in on it if we don't involve ourselves and, like, you know, 
um, what they used to call contesting prayer, not giving up prayer. Because we live in a give-up culture, right? People are giving up all kinds of things. They're giving up on their marriages. They're giving up on their families. They're giving up on their jobs. They're giving up on their, the hope that they'll ever be happy. They're giving up, giving up, giving up, giving up. That's kind of the world we live in. But this kind of prayer that says, I'm not going anywhere, Jesus. I'm not going anywhere, Lord. I am going to pray, pray, pray. He's going to do the good stuff that he planned anyway, but he wants us to pray like the good stuff depends on us praying for it. And that's where we're at. That's certainly where we're at as a church, to contend for that kind of, 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 of reality, the presence of Jesus in this place. We'll talk about that later. And we're right in the season of prayer right now anyway, because we're praying for, uh, you know, we're going through that uh, prayer journal. Hope you're using that. Hope you're, uh, you know, it's, it's touching you and you're enjoying it. But contend in prayer with that for this into the next generation uh, campaign that we're doing. You know, at this point, it doesn't really matter what you do or what God's going to do or so forth and so on. What matters is, is that we're praying together that he does what he wants to do. And that we go, go uh, consistently and, 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 and strongly in that, you see. You see, that's the kind of prayer I think Jesus is praying up there on the mountainside. And look what happens next. Because now we kind of get to the stuff that starts to get applied to us. Verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. And he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before the dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. And he was about to pass by them. But when he saw, they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. They feared a great fear. <laughs> it was frightening for them. I mean, first of all, they're straining at the oars, okay? They're straining at the oars. You know what that word can actually be translated at? And, and many times in the New Testament, it is translated this way. It can be translated torment. They're tormenting in the waves. That's how much of a wind this was, okay? They're tormenting, trying to row this boat, pretty good-sized boat. <clears throat> and and as, they, uh, as they're doing that, Jesus sees them that they're tormented. You know, there's another time that this same word is used, and it's by the person who's sort of speaking in Mark's ear. Because remember, Peter had been the person that Mark had been translator for. So when Mark writes his apologetic treatise and his apologetic book called the Book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, which is really the Gospel of Jesus, he's remembering what Peter taught about what he saw. And apparently Peter told this story. Apparently Peter said, this is exactly what happened. This is how it was. Okay? And so Peter... In his letter, or second letter, uh, in the New Testament, he actually uses this word to describe somebody who is contending and having a challenge of living in a culture that's blowing itself up. And it's starting to devolve and feed on itself. And get this, in that particular culture, it's the, it's the nephew of Abraham, a guy named Lot, back in the book of Genesis. Remember that guy? That guy... He was living in a culture who had devolved so much they'd gone mad with regard to their sexuality. Every kind of sexual uh, disgust you can possibly think of, they were doing it in Sodom and Gomorrah. Watch this. He says, If he, that is God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made a, them an example for what is going to happen to the ungodly, yikes, 
And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, and then the little parentheses here, for that righteous man, that is Lot, living among them day after day, was tormented. There's the word. Same word as, uh, as straining. Was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. In other words, living in that culture took its toll. Verse 9, but if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to do that. Isn't that good? In fact, what comes next, at the beginning of verse 48, it says Jesus saw them straining. Isn't that good to know? He's on the land, he's up on the hillside, he can see them. He's got his eye on them. You know what that means? That means in the midst of our stormy culture, he's got his eye on you and me too. Now, in our dystopian world, we've kind of flipped that on its head. We've kind of flipped evil on its head. Not we, but the culture has flipped evil on its head. Have you noticed how many movies are about, you know, doggone it, demons are people too. You know, they're not. You know, doggone it, you know, that, that person is perpetrating evil, but they've had a tough life, you know, and so forth and so on. So, you know, yeah, I got to excuse, no. I mean, how many times do we hear that kind of thing sort of fed into us? Um, and, and, you, and the thing is, is, is uh, we'll get into spiritual entities in just a second, but they're not like little, you know, the little imps you see dancing around on, on movie screens and things like that. You see, what this is saying is God's got his eye on us, even though it doesn't, you know, the, the, this dystopian age has kind of fed this kind of, you know, stuff into our assumptions, so we assume you know, when God does show up, it's just, you know, I've seen it before. We haven't seen it before. These guys have not seen what they've seen before. Because look, they, they see Jesus walking on the water, and uh, they, they think, they assume he's a ghost. That's a ghost in their mind. I mean, it, 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 they're predisposed in their minds to think Jesus is a ghost. Because they, they've, they've known about that. You know, they believe in ghosts, I mean, apparently, or of some kind. This is, we'll talk about the translation of this in a minute. But, but the reality is, is they, they look at this and they see this. And it, it's sort of like uh, the ghosts in the machine. Um, Jordan and I were going through this this week, uh, talking about um, uh, the, the message. And he said, when I saw your title, I thought it was going to be like ghosts in the machine. You know, that's a phrase. And it's a phrase that shows up in a movie called I, Robot, where the, they're, they're talking about artificial intelligence. And the, um, the, uh, the uh, doctor or the scientist there it says, talks about it as ghosts in the machine, that artificial intelligence, uh, which I hope doesn't happen, but we're headed that way. It's going to make the uh, struggle culturally of the atomic bomb and the atomic age coming into the world uh, you know, look like kiddie play, but here we go. Uh, the, the reality is, is the, 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 or, or what the movie says is that those, those, uh, there's a latent mind in these machines that we just need to set free kind of thing. It actually was first coined by a philosopher uh, in 1949, an Oxford philosopher who said, you know, we are not separate beings. We carry the mind in our physical bodies. That's all one thing of who we are. So you can't just say the only thing real is the physical, okay, which actually is a true thing. But the reality is, is that these, had, these guys had, you know, sort of these latent uh, things that they had been told, these, they, that they'd let form their assumptions about what they saw and what they saw around them. So they assumed Jesus was just simply a ghost, or, but it really was the ghost in the machine of their mind, so to speak. 
And, and, and you look at this and you go, why does Jesus pass them by, right? I mean, why not run for them? I mean, he's walking on water anyway. Why not run for them and wave his arms and send up the bat signal, you know? It's me, it's me. <laughs> why is he, is this like a race we're going to move in? What, what's with that? Well, First of all, you need to understand that there have been some people, nobody, no serious uh, Bible scholar believes this today, but some people have in the past tried to say, well, Jesus just walked on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, but it looked, the optical illusion was he was closer. Or he walked on rocks, you know, the water was really low, I mean, they're really reaching, uh, you know, just across. But the fact of the matter is, is when Peter spoke to Mark about this. When Mark wrote it down, there's no other way to translate this than Jesus walked on the water. Because what he's trying to express and what he's trying to explain is, uh, is that this, to use the theological term, is a theophany. What's a theophany? Theos being God, a, a, a God expression in this world, on our, in our world. Because these guys, they knew They'd been raised, uh, you know, by their Hebrew parents about the Old Testament. They knew that only God can walk on water. So they assumed that this was an entity that they'd never seen before, that there, there was a, a, an entity of uh, a ghost. Because they, they, they'd never seen God walk on water before either, right? They knew that this had to be supernatural. In fact, the, the, the reality of this word ghost only shows up twice in the New Testament. It's here and in Matthew's version of this story in Matthew 14. It actually means a, a spiritual entity. So yeah, are spiritual entities real? Absolutely, they're real. We believe they're real. They're just not like those silly little imps that are you know, sort of created to feel sorry for them on the stupid movies that we see. I, I watched this one CBS show, this new CBS show. I only watched one episode um, because it was kind of weird. It's called Evil. Have you seen that? I thought, evil, that's a theological word. I better watch this, see what this is. Well, and you know, network, shouldn't, network TV can't have all the other junk that cable does, so this must, you know. But I got to tell you, I, I quit watching it uh, because uh, when I saw the demon, the demon shows up in the first episode, it made me laugh. I mean, because it, it's like, okay, the horns and the, <laughs> the you know, black face and, you know, all this, just bizarre things. But that's not what they are. They, they don't express themselves that way because if they can stay hidden and, and if they can just torment people with, you know, not showing themselves, then that's what they'll do. And th but the reality is, is that that's, that's the reality. But th this word for ghost is phantasma. It also does show up one more time in the book of, of uh, Hebrews, chapter 12, where it's talking about God showing supernatural presence on the Mount Sinai in the, in the wilderness, you know? So that's what it means. It means these kind of supernatural events. So they knew it was a supernatural event, but the theophany of it is this. Jesus is doing what God does and what we've been told in the Old Testament God does. For example, in the oldest story in the Old Testament besides Genesis 1 to 11, in all likelihood, the story of Job, we're told about this kind of thing, that this is what God does. Look at Job chapter 9. He says, he alone, that is God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Hey, Jesus did that. And when he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Hey, the disciples did that. So I, for whatever else reason, Jesus is passing them by. He's definitely walking on the water. And as he walks and passes them by, he's simply doing what God would do. 
And their first reaction is to do what we humans' first reaction is, is this can't be Jesus. This got to be something bad because bad stuff always happens to us when Jesus isn't around. So that's kind of what they're, what they're assuming and what they're thinking. But there's another theophany in here. There's another expression of God's presence in Jesus. Look at halfway through uh, verse 50. Immediately they spoke to the, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Look at that. Three things that it says about the disciples. Remember, Peter's telling Mark what happened. First of all, we're completely amazed. That means it's like we're shocked when Jesus gets in the boat. We thought you was a ghost. Yeah. And secondly, you know, it, it says they still were chewing on this loaves and fishes thing, man. They still didn't get that. And their hearts were hardened. That's pretty severe, right? I mean, because it's, that's, what, that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees who wanted to kill him. That's what God said to Pharaoh when he wouldn't let his people go, right? What, what's with that? Well, you got to back up to understand that fully to... to um, Take courage, it is I. Those words, it is I, and I'm going to tell you the Greek here just so you can kind of see it. It's, the first word is ego, like we think of ego. Ego and me. It means I am, or it is I. But we've heard I am before, haven't we? That's precisely the name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses says, okay, I'll go to Egypt, uh, he finally says it because he tries to get out of it. He says, I, but what am I, who am I supposed to tell him sent me? Tell him, I am that I am sent you. Ego ami, ego ami. Because you know what? The Old Testament wasn't originally written in, in uh, Greek, but you know what the translation, uh, when, it, when it was translated into Greek? A long time, years, a century before Jesus walked the planet, so that was the Bible in their hands at that time, ego me. It's actually, actually the same thing that John tells us Jesus said in John chapter 8 that almost got Jesus killed right there on the spot when he said, before Abraham was, I am. That's not just bad grammar. That's him saying, that I am is me. And it is ultimately the phrase that the Pharisees used to trump up charges on him. I mean, because really it is heresy unless it's really you. So they trumped up the, the charges and sent him to the cross ultimately for claiming his godness. They knew exactly what he was saying. And as Jesus is walking across the water, that's exactly what he says. I am. I am is with you. I'm with you. My presence it's the power of his presence that makes all this difference in the world. That's the reality that, that uh, Mark is trying to get us to see. And so, so there was some truth in the idea that, you know, every time Jesus goes away, we get in trouble. There's some truth in that. Every time we don't see him, every time we, for whatever reason, kind of take our eyes off him, that's when we get in trouble. And that's exactly what has happened for him, the great I am. You see, this is both challenging and encouraging at the same time in the midst of this cultural moment too. 
It's just like Sayers saying, what if God is painting a blank canvas because he wants to do a whole new thing in America today? Even in post-Christian frontier on the Willamette PDX. What if he wants to do What if that's what he's up to? Sayers says something later in his book that I think is the summary of the whole book, of the whole point. And, and if you just read this paragraph, you're going to get the point of the book. I didn't, I didn't tell the resilient Christian class that I made them read the whole book, but you get this for free. Here we go. It says, in the post-Christian vision, progress replaces God's presence as the engine of history. Okay, you get that, right? I mean, that people are saying, oh, it's progress. We're going to get better and better and better and better and better. How's that working out for you? Okay, by rejecting God, that's what they think. Rather than saying, okay, God, we need your presence, you know, that, which is, you know, the Christian thing. Now they're going to reject that. Okay, here we go. So that, that's what people are believing down more and often. But look at this. Our cultural crises show us the consequences of what happens when we try to take over controls of the world. A revival is when the presence floods, that is God's presence, floods a church, a city, or a country, becoming a powerful force that completely reorients the health of that system. So the story of the Bible is the story of the return of his presence. To grasp this truth is to understand the essence of renewal. We can only be healing presences in systems without turning toxic ourselves when we first become living temples of his presence. That's why Jesus gets in the boat. That's why Jesus wants to get in our boat. And that's why Jesus, after these disciples are shocked, they still show they don't believe that he can do miracles even after he'd done all the miracles. They still have hardened hearts. Look what Jesus does and how he responds. Verse 53. When they had crossed over they landed at Gennesaret, which is a little town in the corner, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, where we stop and have fish, and we take a boat ride ourselves when we go to Israel. At Gennesaret, and anchored there. And after they put down the anchor, Jesus laid a Holy Spirit whooping on all the disciples. Boy, that doesn't say that. Verse 54, as soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus, and they ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick and mats to whatever they heard, wherever they heard he was, and wherever he went to, into the villages and countryside. They placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch the edge of his cloak, which was a thing for rabbis in those days and, and faith healers. And all who touched it were actually healed in this case. Now, you, you ask yourself, why did Mark put that in at the end? I mean, it just sort of, hearts were hardened. Oh, they landed the boat, and they just start business as usual. You know what I think it is? I think it's because he's saying, you know, God's not uh, looking to beat us into faith. Jesus not, but he is asking us to simply be open to him changing our hearts and opening our hearts to the possibility that he's really real and he's here right now. And, he, and, and if... If, if it doesn't work the first time, he's coming back the next time. He's going to continue. You know, it's sort of like, you know, uh, if you say, well, you know, God hasn't helped me. God hasn't helped me. God's not helping me. The world's getting worse. My life's getting worse and so forth and so on. Trials. And, and so God's not it. It's sort of like, well, have some more crises and then you'll see. Because you see, trial and revelation go together apparently. 
doesn't mean we go looking for trial. No, no, no. There's, there's plenty of trial in the fallen world. We all know that. But it's sort of like, okay, trial, in the midst of that, Jesus reveals himself. And you start to focus on that. Where are you in this situation, Jesus? Where do you want me to be open to? What do you want me to be open to the possibility of? Where do you want me to head next? What do you want me to do? Instead of having hardened hearts like, oh, holding back, you know, as hard as it might be sometimes. And there's some really serious crises in the world right now, in, in our lives, some of us, right? Not to make any light of that, but to say, hey, Jesus I said, now that we're talking about how I can show you how really real I am and lift you up above and beyond all of that and reveal himself because he says he's not gone anywhere. He says that his name is Emmanuel, God, with us. It's just a matter of revealing it or the revelation of that in our lives and our hearts. And I think that's why Mark puts this here because Jesus wasn't looking to whoop these guys. He wasn't looking to, you know, give them a tongue lashing until they believed what they were supposed to believe. He said, okay, guys, let's go heal some people. You're going to see it one more time. You're going to see some amazing stuff. Watch this. People touch my cloak and bam, they're healed. Watch that. See? Flows and fishes. <laughs> power over demons, power over nature, power over physics, power over everything. I have even power over groceries. Right? All of that. Which all brings us down to three final thoughts I just want to sort of pull out here and ask us to think about as we go home. The first one is this. Jesus uses crises to show us how past experiences shape correctly or incorrectly our assumptions about him. I mean, left to ourselves, without, you know, recognizing Jesus' presence, sometimes those past experiences just do it incorrectly so we have a hard time seeing him in the future. Let me give you one sort of example. This is even a Christian church example. The first church I was the pastor of, it wasn't here, or the, the first church I was the lead pastor of, um, well, actually it was the second church, but anyway, it was in Seattle, and it was the first, uh, you know, inner city uh, church I had been the, the pastor of, and I had one guy on staff with me, and we had this this room, they call it the fireside room. It had a fireside on one side, but on the other side of that, from the fireplace, there was a, a wall that had um, 10, 12, I can't remember, pictures of past pastors in black and white, in ties and suits, going like this. I mean, I mean, their faces, you know, like that. Okay. My friend and I, I was a cynical little twerp of about 25 or 26, so I, I, uh, we called it the room of sweet memories. And they wanted my picture, my black and white, to put up there. I said, no, you can't have it. I said, what? what? And they, finally a friend of mine came to me and said, why don't, why don't you want your picture on the wall? I said, because those are like ghosts on the wall. I said, what are you talking about? I said, I am so tired of hearing how it was great when Pastor so-and-so was here and how Pastor so-and-so was here. People are looking so far backwards and they're, that's all they can see about the future and what we want to do is how it was then. Well, guess what? The world's not like it is, was then. It's like it is now. And God's calling us to new stuff. It's okay, okay, okay. No picture on the wall. Yeah, I know. And, and it, you know, it's sort of what... <laughs> It really came home to me when we had one of our board meetings. I can't remember exactly what board. I think it was the trustee board. This church had three boards, and it was spelled B-O-R-E-D. I don't know how that happened, but um, we we're going with this new program of something we wanted to do. I think we wanted to fix up the building that was getting dilapidated or something. I can't remember what it was. And uh, one of the trustees spoke up and said, 
we can't do that here. I said, what do you mean? We've never done it that way. Seemingly oblivious to the joke of the seven last words of the church are, we've never done it that way before. Why? Because of the ghosts, quote-unquote, not the real ghosts, but the ghosts like these guys' ghosts. That they interpreted what Jesus could do and what Jesus couldn't do via what had happened in the past and the wall of sweet memories. Right? The, other, the other thing I think we see in this chapter is to avoid that then. We get clear understanding. We need the presence of Jesus to avoid that kind of thing. How do you, how do you experience the presence of Jesus? Well, that's the second thing. Unless we have our senses trained by Scripture and prayer, we fall back to our old familiar assumptions. Jesus, we've talked about Scripture before. Jesus wants us to be in the Word. He says it's never going to pass away. He, he gives us the example over and over again of prayer. And that only, you know, these kinds of things can happen when prayer, real serious prayer happen. He says that, and we'll see him say that uh, later on in a couple of chapters in the book of Mark. But, you know, there's an interesting verse about this, this scripture and prayer business in Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, beginning of verse, uh, I'm going to back up to verse uh, 11 and read it to, to you from the New American Standard Version because it really gives kind of the the real literal translation here. It says, concerning him, that is Jesus, we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Oh, how did that happen? For though this, by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. So he's talking to a, a church of people that you know, have, have somehow uh, just kind of gone back to the way they've always done it before and I've always thought about it before. And you have come to the need of, to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But the solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That word senses trained, you know what the word trained is? Again, I'm going to tell you the Greek language here you know, we're not all about Greek here, just in case you're new. It's not, we don't do Greek every Sunday. But you can impress your friends with these words. Um, the word is gymnos or gymnos. You get gymnasium from this word. Unless you have your workout going spiritually, Scripture and prayer. You see, that's where you find the environment to help chase away those ghosts in our assumptions. It's at the corner of Southeast Scripture and Prayer. And that's where we find it. And that leads us to the point that Jesus, I think, is trying to get across to us. And it is this, this third one, this third thought. So for Christians, the Christian, challenges or crises are the reopening of our lives to his presence. That's what we've already heard, we've sung about, we've experienced, and now we've experienced it in the text, in the, the story of Jesus in the Bible. Isn't that good? I mean, that, that sort of puts a lot in perspective about our worship service, but it puts a lot in perspective about our lives and what's going to happen when we go to work or go to school the next day, right? And the, 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 the encouragement is not to kind of close off when God's going to reopen something, not to let the crises close you off the other way. It, it's, you know... 
Some of some, that, that business about the infants and needing uh, milk, spiritual milk rather than the solid food kind of reminds me of a, a, a story from our family legendarium uh, of a, one of the nephews uh, of ours who was a little kid and, and he was he got sent to bed and um, Sharon's got four sisters and, and uh, I, don't, I can't remember which sister this is, but uh, the, the, the little guy was, and he's a grown man now, so don't tell him I told you this, but I, I don't remember which one it was, but he... Uh, he was, praying, he was crying in the room, and she said, what's wrong? He said, I'm scared. What are you scared of? Scared of the dark and that dude that's probably under my bed. And she said, don't you know Jesus is with you? And he said, I'm scared of him too. <laughs> why? Because my, my image of who he is, and man, I don't want that. And that's exactly the opposite. That's why Jesus, I think, doesn't put a pistol whipping on these people. Because that's not who he is. And he realizes, hey, the fear of God is something different than the fear that you're fearing right now. So let me just say this. As a church family, can we just kind of agree on the, in the midst of the, this time and this opportunity? I mean, we are in the midst of a challenge, but it's more of an opportunity that you pray through the prayer journal or whatever it is you're doing. Let's pray uh, that Jesus' presence would really show up in our lives. And let's not give up. Let's pray that he would show up in our families. Let's pray that he'd show up in our church in a brand new and fresh way and that we would have eyes to see and hearts that are open to the possibilities. Let's pray that we would understand the presence and the love of Jesus in a powerful way that is in such a way that when we walk out of here, when we live our lives and when we go about, that we can be those non-anxious presences that live among people that show, hey, there's something different. There's a presence there that, ah, boy, that sure be cool, right? Let's do that. Let's pray for that because that is the kind of prayer that Jesus loves to answer by getting in our boat. Just pray and lift that up to him, would you? Pray with me. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward, and after we pray, we'll take up the offering. Our loving Lord Jesus, thank you for being more gentle with us than we are with ourselves, just like you were with your disciples, your original disciples. But also, thank you for being real and being here in the midst of the challenges and the crises and the fears and everything else that swirl around us so often. And Lord, thank you for giving us time because we recognize it's a journey. Thank you for walking with us but we do pray that the eyes of our heart, the eyes of the heart of our church, because that word heart, when it says their hearts were hardened, in this story, is singular. It wasn't their hearts, it was their heart. And Lord, I just pray that you would together make our heart as a church, as your family here on this street corner, that we would work out in the gym of prayer and scripture to the point that we would be open to you being present, us realizing and waking up to the fact that you are here whenever and however you want us to wake up to it. Thank you that that happens so often here. I thank you that I get to be a pastor at a church like that. But Lord, make us ready, make us hopeful, make us open to something we haven't seen before and seen you do. Probably in a bigger way than we've seen you do it before. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here. Thank you for walking alongside of us 
as we've gone through this text and through this worship experience and heard stories. And may we come back with more stories of your presence in our lives. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.